Hello and welcome to another edition of Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, a UK-based charity working to help support and inform people living with pain and healthcare professionals. This edition has been supported by a grant from the Scottish Government. We all, I presume, get headaches, but when should we be seeking treatment from our GP and will he or she be equipped with the right knowledge to help us? Dr Paul Davis is a consultant neurologist at Northampton General Hospital. He also runs a headache clinic at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. He addressed health professionals at the Welsh Pain Society annual scientific meeting on this very issue. The problem is that uh, there are all sorts of different headaches and some headaches are very serious and life-threatening but most of them are just very painful and uh, we have many patients who are totally disabled with chronic headache. Although most people have just intermittent problems which they may adequately treat with analgesics, but uh, there's a proportion of headache sufferers that really do need medical attention that they don't always get. Patients, when they first develop headache, often think they've got something serious, but those are relatively rare and usually fairly easy to diagnose. The vast majority of uh, headaches are benign, and there are a variety of them, but the most common would be migraine, which is a recurrent severe headache. It comes in various uh, shapes and sizes. There's tension-type headache, which is uh, just as common, and again uh, affects people uh, with varying frequency and duration. And then there are some rarer, but indeed uh, very painful headaches, like cluster headache. This is a benign headache. It affects men more than women. It affects about one in a thousand people. And it's, it's often called suicide headache because it is so painful. Are there problems with diagnosis? Yes. The headache, of course, is just a symptom. And we are trying to diagnose the cause of that symptom. There may not be a particular cause as such, like in migraine. Or there may be a, a, a serious cause that uh, you need to discover. But all headache diagnoses are firmly based on taking a good history from the patient, asking the patient about how long they've had the headaches, how often they occur, what they're like. And time spent taking the history will lead to a good idea uh, as to the type of headache that patient's got. The examination in most people will be normal, but of course in people with serious causes it may be uh, vital to uh, the diagnosis. Tests are often done, but uh, we seldom find results on tests like scans that we weren't expecting. So the history is the key to the diagnosis. So people who will be worried that they've got a brain tumour or anything, should they really be worried when they have a headache? No. If headache is the only symptom, it's, it's almost unheard of that they'll end up having a brain tumour. Indeed, brain tumours uh, tend not to give headache until they're really quite big, so they tend to present with uh, people having seizures or uh, people having paralysis or uh, sensory problems. So really, it's pretty obvious when someone's got a brain tumour. They're so rare that in the vast majority of people you don't need any tests to prove that they don't have a brain tumour. 
in your talk to the Welsh Pain Society, you talked about episodic headaches mm. and chronic headaches. Mm-hmm. I presume an episodic headache is something that I or other people might have occasionally. We, we take chronic headache to mean uh, a headache that occurs on 15 or more days in the month. In other words, it occurs most days. Uh, it may be all the time. It certainly must be most of the time. We, we need to diagnose the, the type of chronic headache, even though the patient may say, I've got a pain in my head every day. So there are several diagnoses where the pain is chronic chronic migraine, chronic tension-type headache, medication overuse headache, things like that, they are treated differently. So we must make a diagnosis, even though they've got a pain all the time. Do the same drugs that work for chronic pain work for chronic headache? Not necessarily. Some do. So, for example, amitriptyline is used a lot in pain clinics for chronic pain. It's also used a lot as a migraine prevention pill, so it could be used for chronic migraine. Yet there are other drugs that are used a lot in chronic pain, chronic back pain, like pregabalin or gabapentin, which really are rather ineffective in uh, the prevention of chronic migraine. So it is important to diagnose the type of chronic headache because it will influence the type of treatment you give patients. It seems to me as a layman that there are different mechanisms working with chronic pain and chronic headache. There must be a fair bit of overlap, but... The fact that different drugs have different effects in these different pains and different headache syndromes does, I think, imply that uh, there are different mechanisms. But I think also there are lots of similarities. If if you've got a chronic migraine and it's different from a chronic pain in the head, it may still make you anxious or depressed and bring on a lot of those comorbidities that... uh, you know, people who work in pain clinics see in patients with with chronic back pain, for example. Can we self-medicate our headaches? Yes, uh, and indeed most people do, and for many people it's entirely safe and works satisfactorily, such that they don't need to seek medical help. I'm talking largely about the more benign end of the spectrum, people who may be get migraine once a month or something like that. The difficulty with self-medication comes if the headache's very frequent. Then patients will want to take analgesics frequently or they may use them in the wrong way, like uh, I'm going out tonight, I don't want a headache, I'll take two aspirin. And if they take analgesics too frequently then they can lead to a disorder that is being increasingly recognized where the headache is a result of taking all this analgesia, medication overuse headache. And there's no test for that, and the only treatment is to withdraw the offending analgesics. And it is a huge problem. What's your advice to people who suffer headaches? It's uh, important to have a diagnosis and... uh, Often people know they've got migraine because the symptoms are so typical. Uh, Maybe their mother had migraine and the mum says, oh, that's just migraine. But if they have troublesome headache and they don't know what's causing it, then they, they need to see a medical practitioner. They need a diagnosis so that they will receive the right treatment. So are GPs particularly good at diagnosing headache? 
Well, I think we know from studies that, uh, that they are not particularly good. We know uh, that if you have a headache and you go along to your general practitioner, the odds are you won't be diagnosed with your headache. As a result, you, you'll be given some analgesic, which uh, if it doesn't work, you'll, you'll want something a bit stronger. And, you know, the last thing one wants to do is give strong analgesics to uh, headache sufferers as it just tends to make the problem worse. I think GPs are improving, but uh, there's still a fair way to go in, in getting the right diagnosis. Consultant neurologist Dr Paul Davis. I'll just remind you that whilst we at Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound, based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Now, a topical medicine is one that's applied to surface areas of the body as opposed to those which are delivered into the body, say by tablet or injection. They are an emerging area of interest for patients and physicians, so why is that? Dr Mick Serple is a consultant in anaesthesia and pain medicine in Glasgow. I think it's important at first to distinguish what we mean by topical medicines. Uh, a lot of people will think, you know, a patch on the skin is a topical medicine. And examples of that would be uh, some of the opioid patches, you know, fentanyl or the buprenorphine patches, but also hormone replacement therapy and anti-sickness drugs. They can give, be given by patches, but they are tools that deliver a drug through the skin into the bloodstream. So they're not topical. They're applied on the skin, but they're working generally around the body by being absorbed into the blood. So what does topical mean in this context? Topical means the, the medication is applied to the area that is painful and that predominantly the drug is concentrated into that tissue and has an effect at that local level. Some of it will be absorbed into the blood, but tiny amounts, and that won't be contributing to the pain-relieving effect of the, of the medication. I'm thinking now of people trying to give up smoking. If they put mm -hmm. a nicotine patch on, that goes into the bloodstream. But what we're talking about now is, is if I have a pain in my leg, I put a patch on there, and that just affects the pain in my leg locally. That's right, yes. So patch often means the drug is working you know, systemically by being absorbed in the bloodstream. It might be better to call all these sort of topical therapies a plaster. And for example, the lidocaine plaster is something which works topically at the area that is applied to. And most people can associate the idea of a plaster, a band-aid that you put on a sore bit, uh, you know, a cut, uh, and it's just over that local area. So plaster would be a better term because it's applied to the painful area and it works purely in that painful area. There may be overspill secondary benefits, uh, which we see with successful treatment, but uh, it's working pre predominantly at the local site of application. Can you explain to me what these patches, or let's call them plasters if you like, mm -hmm. what they're used for? Perhaps first uh, might be worthwhile just saying what topical therapies most people may be more familiar with uh, that are out there in terms of pain-killing uh, treatments. And the anti-inflammatory gel, uh, you can buy that from the chemist. That's just a cream. You rub that on a sore joint. Um, and there's also the chili pepper cream, which has been out for 30, 40 years. Again, that's a, a cream. You rub it over 
the painful area. Uh, what's happened more recently is the uh, development of plasters, as we're going to call them, which are a preformed uh, material with the drug impregnated, and you apply this to the skin and the drug has its effect. The two main used ones are the lidocaine plaster, uh, which has been out for over five years, and more recently the, um, the chili pepper plaster. And they're quite different drugs, and they work in different ways, and they work for different types of pain. So the lidocaine plaster is, uh, contains lidocaine, which is uh, a local anaesthetic that most people may be familiar with uh, getting from the dentists. Uh, very old drug, uh, about 60 years old. Uh, when it's uh, concentrated into the plaster and applied over the painful area, it can have a, an analgesic benefit. And it's used primarily for neuropathic pain conditions, that's nerve pain conditions, and predominantly it's used for post-hepatic neuralgia, but also uh, sometimes diabetic neuropathy, but also post-operative wound scar pains if there's a, a neuropathic or nerve component to that and uh, some people have used it in some other conditions which uh, it's not actually licensed for but palliative medicine uh, clinicians sometimes use it for for example bone metastatic pain deposits it does have some benefit in some cases there are there any downsides to using these medications well uh, administering them topically has big advantages in general. Very little drug is absorbed into the bloodstream, so therefore systemic side effects are much less common. But the, the drugs uh, can have you know, some minor effects. But as a general rule, topical therapies have much lower side effects. They predominantly have problems with local side effects, and that may be uh, skin irritation. If the patient is allergic to the adhesive uh, that is used to stick the plaster to the skin or if they're allergic to the actual ingredient, the drug ingredient. Uh, some people are allergic to light local anesthetics or to the chili pepper. But normally side effects are contained to the local tissue, so it's, uh, it's skin rash or, or redness. But uh, th there is a small number that do get systemic side effects of nausea, but you get that with any type of treatment, you know, placebo, uh, also has side effects like that, so uh, but they're much, much less than taking a systemic therapy. Should you be aware of taking other painkillers or other medicines when using these? Generally not, because uh, very little of the drug is taken into the bloodstream, so it shouldn't really interfere or interact with other drugs that the patient may be on. And if you do get uh, good effect, good pain relief by using a topical therapy, that often allows you to reduce the dose and maybe even stop some of the drugs that you're taking for pain relief. You mentioned chili pepper. Now that's something that's used to induce pain. So how does it work as a pain relief? Yes, it's uh, an interesting phenomenon. Um, the active proper name for the ingredient is uh, capsicum. And uh, when it's applied to the skin, uh, you're quite right, it actually activates pain. And certainly there are experimental pain models where you inject chili pepper to induce an acute pain in order to sort of study it. And so when you apply these creams or the chili plaster, Patients often do get some pain. The more dilute creams, it tends to be more of a burning sensation. 
the stronger patch, which is about uh, over 100 times stronger than the strongest cream, is quite a strong reaction. It uh, can be actually painful during the application. But that will subside after uh, a few hours or sometimes days. But you're quite right. What they do is stimulate the nervous system to begin with, so patients will get pain. And then it causes changes within the nerves. It co it's actually a neurotoxin. So it actually causes the nerves to, as it were, die at the peripheries and retract into the skin. So there is some degradation, but this is reversible. When the medication stops, the nerves will slowly grow back after a few weeks. And uh, the pain relief is uh, induced by that mechanism. So it's kicking the pain relief into action, basically. Yes, nerve pain is induced by nerves that are acting abnormally, they're hyperexcitable, and they're throwing off electrical impulses, which is continually giving the patient the sensation of pain. And the chili pepper plaster will actually knock out the nerves and temporarily degrade them. So they're not functioning anymore and the pain settles down. But as the nerves regrow back, which all the evidence suggests at the moment that they, they grow back normally, then eventually uh, pain most commonly uh, returns again. And then a second application can be done and, uh, and so on. Do you become immune to the effects the more you use? There's no evidence for that. Clinical trials have been done with patients uh, getting repeat applications over a year, and there's no evidence that you know, the third, fourth patch is any less effective than the first one. But as clinical experience uh, you know, accumulates, as we have real patients uh, who actually have these uh, uh, plasters applied over several years, then we'll, we'll get the true answer for that. But at the moment, there's no suggestion that tolerance develops. I take it these aren't over-the-counter drugs? No, uh, both of them are prescription-only medicines. So uh, in the first case, the lidocaine plaster, your GP can prescribe them, and the patient can apply them themselves. And usually with a lidocaine plaster, it's, it's put over the painful area for 12 hours and then taken off for 12. So it's a, a once-a-day or once-a-night application, uh, but done every day. The uh, chili pepper plaster is quite different. It's quite concentrated, quite potent, so the patient can't apply it to themselves. If you get it on your eyes, uh, it can cause some serious damage. So it's actually applied by a trained uh, individual, most commonly a nurse who's gone through a formal training process, and she'll be wearing uh, gloves at least, and often they have a mask on uh, and uh, eye protection, and it's done in a well-ventilated room because they do give off some fumes, chili pepper fumes, and that can induce uh, some coughing, airway irritation, sometimes runny eyes if uh, the concentration of vapor is, is too high. So that's why it's done in a proper setting in a you know, good, well-ventilated room with a trained uh, individual. And it's applied for one hour and then taken off. And uh, a good responder will have uh, pain relief lasting for three months or longer. So it's, as it were, a, a treatment that the patient will come in, get done, and then they go away and uh, they can forget about medication, hopefully forget about their pain if they've had a good result, for many weeks, maybe months. So who would be offered the chili pepper? Patches. These would be patients who have neuropathic pain. It's uh, licensed for post-hepatic neuralgia pain. Uh, there are other nerve pains which it has been used for. It's also licensed for um, HIV-induced uh, neuropathy. And actually very few treatments work 
in HIV uh, neuropathy. So this is one of the few effective medications. So those two groups, uh, HIV neuropathy and post-hepatic neuralgia, but we know there are many other types of neuropathic pain patients out there. And although clinical trials haven't been completed to warrant a granting of a license indication, we as clinicians uh, have used it in these off-label conditions like post-operative scar pain and found good results uh, in some patients. So I think the important thing is that patients get a proper assessment of their pain and are well informed on what their treatment options are. And drugs form a part of that treatment, but it's not the only part uh, and sometimes has very little or sometimes even no role. I think it's important to look at the non-drug therapies, uh, the physiotherapy, the psychology. But if we're using drugs, uh, we try and get a sensible combination of drugs that uh, are going to be the most effective for the patient and uh, have the least side effects. And uh, particularly with resistant pain, you often have to combine and, uh, drugs and maybe use uh, two, three, four, sometimes five different drugs. So it's, uh, the more drugs you use, the more chance of side effects. So we're trying to sort of uh, minimize that. And one way of doing that would be to use a topical therapy where systemic side effects are you know, generally much, much reduced. Consultant in anesthesia and pain medicine, Dr. Mick Serple. Well, what if the tablet you're taking could, in terms of its chemical makeup, have absolutely no side effects at all? Indeed, no effect of any kind at all. In fact, unbeknown to you, you're only taking it because the doctor thinks the psychological benefits of taking it will far outweigh those of not taking it. The term placebo, that pill or medicine given purely for psychological effect, actually comes from the Latin, I shall please. Michael Lee is a research associate at the Oxford Centre for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Brain. He's involved in extensive research into the so-called placebo effect. So is it correct to say that a placebo doesn't do anything? It is, but there's a little bit more to that. The tablet itself is inert, and as far as the patient knows, and maybe even the prescriber knows, is biologically inactive, but that's not the same as it doesn't do anything. Clearly it does something, because you have what's called the placebo effect or response, in that um, some patients do improve with this seemingly inert compound that they've just taken. So do people actually give patients with pain conditions little white tablets that outwardly will not do anything to them? If you're talking about current practice, then the answer is probably not. In fact, in a recent 2013 survey uh, of GPs, um, only 7% would say that they've ever, ever prescribed a, what they call a pure placebo, i.e. a tablet that they know does absolutely nothing biologically. Most placebos are actually impure, so they have some action but not necessarily for the condition that's being treated. So an example of that, and that's been of concern, would be prescribing antibiotics, which obviously have a biological effect, but for common cold, which is a viral infection, because there is a strong belief by the patient, or perhaps by the GP, that you know, this is going to be useful. But obviously this is not best practice. So that would be called an impure placebo. So that is purely to fool the patient? Uh, 
not purely to fool the patient, but perhaps to reassure. Yeah. And in fact, in the 1950s, placebo prescription was considered actually quite acceptable. In fact, benevolent um, and kind even. But that's really because we were at that time in an era where we didn't have not have specific treatments for disease. We only had very general panaceas. So with your study on placebo, are there actually any benefits? Well, the, the thing about placebo is that it relies on the belief of the patient and also the interaction between a doctor and a patient as to how effective this tablet is going to be. Even if you take a tablet that is really quite effective, you can always make it more effective by the way you present it. For example, its packaging, its cost and all that. So what brain imaging tries to do is to find out, is this really related to a true pain-killing effect? Or is it more related to what they call a report bias? So if I treat you very well as a person and I give you a tablet, and even though the tablet isn't doing what you want it to do, but because I'm really nice to you, you might come back to me to say, well, Dr. Lee, I think it's, it's really working. Now, for me, that you, you're better, but in reality, you're not. But there's a report bias that's happening. So what brain imaging wants to do is to capture objectively the actual brain response to pain that happens during placebo, to see that there's an actual change in the way pain is being transmitted to the brain. So can there be a response? Oh, absolutely, and that's what brain imaging has shown that uh, in certain circumstances, placebo has a very real response in terms of the way pain is being transmitted from the periphery to the brain. How does that work if there's no active ingredient? It works really by the way our brain has in terms of actually controlling pain. For example, you may, in heat of sports or uh, vigorous uh, exercise, you not notice being injured. And therefore, we have what's called an endogenous system, control for pain. And this is the very same system that placebo utilizes. So our beliefs can actually activate this endogenous system and produce a very real effect in terms of pain transmission. What um, we've shown in a brain imaging study of uh, healthy volunteers given remifentanil, which is a very powerful intravenous morphine, um, simply by telling them and making them believe that it's going to work and it's not going to work and keeping a drop on all the time changes the way they perceive pain. So if they didn't think that the morphine was going to work even though it was on, they just didn't get any benefit from it. From personal experience, I have fibromyalgia and I bought an electrical stimulation machine. When I bought it, it was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> absolutely. And so he said, oh, is it like taking marijuana? And I said, well, I've never taken marijuana, but if this is what it's like, then yes, it, it just relaxes me. After three months, I found I hadn't plugged it in. Oh. <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> Have I fooled myself? Does it matter? Because mm. I was getting good relaxation out of it. In actual fact, since I've plugged it in, it's been better, but now it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I think that just underlies how malleable the pain experiences are to, you know, what we believe of it and, and, and treatment effects as well. You know, th there's always something that can be improved from biological treatments. Where it's just delivered best practice and, you know, the psychological context is so important. So, yes, I, I would say continue to believe in your device. Like I say, you know, 
many things and the specific effects of treatment is quite small and generally quite specific to the individual, but there's general incidental effects that's, that what people call placebo is just overwhelming and really quite important. Michael Lee of the Oxford Centre for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging of the Brain. Before he has the last word, don't forget that you can still download all editions of Airing Pain from painconcern.org.uk or you can obtain CD copies direct from Pain Concern. Please do visit the website where you can find all sorts of essential information about pain management, including details of Pain Matters, our magazine that complements and expands on issues covered in Airing Pain. As well as in paper form, Pain Matters is now available as a digital download, and for those who use media on computers, tablets and smartphones, the digital editions are not only a more convenient way of receiving your copy of Pain Matters, but they offer an enhanced user experience with links to audio and other relevant information. So please do check it out at the Pain Concern website, and once again, that's painconcern.org.uk. The last word on the placebo effect. If I have aches and pains, you're a doctor prescribing me a tablet, and I thought that was a tablet designed to help me, my brain would say, this is good. Absolutely, yeah. What you believe about your medication is very important, even if it has biological effects, you know, your interaction with a doctor, your trust in him, your trust in the medicine, trust in the whole therapeutic process is very important. I can't emphasize how important it is to have a really good relationship with your prescriber. It's not just about the medicine, it's always more than that. In pain, we always talk about the psychosocial model, and even in prescribing and drugs, that comes into play as well.